My name is Duan Ha, and I'm the founder of Bondel. We are a wine brand and importing company that specializes in French natural wines. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Of course. Your um, your name popped up uh, several times uh, in the last year, and I was at a party recently, and somebody said, "You know, have you gotten uh, Zunha on the podcast yet?" And I I just stopped everything I did at the party, and I I messaged you, and here we are. So thank here you. Here we are, and I've known about you since you know I've moved back to the states, so I feel super honored to be on here. So thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And so let's start with you being in New York. I think you grew up in New York and you did a stint in Europe uh, to get into the culinary business. But let's start off with growing up in New York. What was that like? And then what was the move to, to Europe like for you? Yeah, so my family is actually um, based in upstate New York. So it's like right by Binghamton and it's like three hours north of New York City. Um, so obviously a very different feel than New York itself. But I had a lot of extended family live in the Bronx and like a big Vietnamese community. So even as a kid, we go down to the Bronx every summer, almost every weekend. Um, but moving and living up in upstate New York, it was interesting because it was like, there is a big Vietnamese refugee community because um, a lot of the missionaries brought people to upstate because IBM was there. So there was like a big manufacturing boom in the 90s. So that's why my parents kind of was able or why we located over there. Uh, but, you know, when I was younger, we grew up in the Vietnamese uh, town it was called Johnson City. But as I got a little bit older, my parents kind of like, you know, started establishing themselves a little bit more. We grew up in like a very, very white, like all white, like neighborhood and town. So um, that was, I mean, you know, we can talk about it a little bit down, but it's like that also really affected kind of how I perceive myself and like the Vietnamese community and stuff. Um, but when I was 18, that's when I moved to New York City. So I went to Hunter College, studied political science and women's studies. Um, and then, you know, I didn't really start cooking until I was 25 years old. And then I moved to France when I was 27. What, what led to you cooking? Well, I think all Vietnamese people can kind of like, you know, understand this, whereas like we have such a big food culture. Um, and even when we were refugees in Vietnam, like there are photos where it's like everyone's like sitting on the floor with like a sheet, like all out. There's food everywhere, but there's like Wendy's cups. Like, you know, we didn't really have much, but like you can really see the community amongst food. And so I was always surrounded by that. And like my parents on the weekends would like throw these huge parties, cook all weekend long, spend all week kind of grocery shopping, prepping. And so just being around that, I just love the way that like food was able to bring people together. And when I moved to New York in college, I was like, where are all these like, like food, like dinner parties and stuff. And I realized that wasn't really normal for a lot of people. So then I just started creating that myself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just started bringing a bunch of friends over, started cooking. And I just loved the way that that was able to like make people feel. And I loved how I felt just doing that for others. And so that was the, the initial spark. And then I worked at Google um, when for two years. And the thing about Google is like they have these huge food dining halls with like a tea of chefs, the menu changes every day. And so that kind of gave me a little bit more access to like, like different cuisines, like farm to table cuisine. And so I was like, okay, like I really want to get into like food, but I don't really know how. And so I was like, maybe I'll do like food tech. I'll like, you know, try and like transition my way over. Um, and so after Google, I like started doing like social media marketing for restaurants. Oh, wow. And then finally, like I had some 
some clients. And then my first restaurant I worked at was Marlowe and Sons. And I just like, I was like, hey, like, I would love to work in your kitchen. And they were like, well, you can't really just go into the kitchen. Like you can start at front of house and then transition your way over. And so I actually worked front of house there for eight months. Like that's how like dedicated I was to like wanting to finally get down there. And after eight months, they were working on this kimchi project. And I was like, hey, like, can I just kind of see what you guys are doing? And they're like, yeah, but we're not going to work on it until like 10 o'clock at night. And I think I got off at like eight and I just sat there for like two hours and like waited and went back down at 10. I was like, Hey, are you guys working on it yet? And I think that's when they saw like, okay, like this girl's serious. And that was like my first, you know, kind of introduction into the kitchen. And so I worked in New York for about a year and a half. And then because like I said, I had worked, I started much later in my career as a chef. And I was like competing against people who've been cooking since they were like 16 years old. And so I was like, how do I kind of fast track this and like get up to that level? And so I was like, well, maybe I'll go to culinary school. And you know, if I'm going to go to culinary school anywhere, like let me try and go into France and to Paris specifically. So I applied and it's called, the school's called Ferrandi. It's kind of like their premier school. And it's like in, it's integrated into the French system. So it's like, you have students who are like from high school, college, doing their master's, but they have this really tiny international program. And so I got in and, you know, that's kind of how I started my career into cooking over in France. Now, when you were at Google and you were doing work there, did you work part-time by the time you got to Marlowe and Sons? And like, how did that transition happen? I, you know, I, I, as a listener of your story, I'm, I'm curious because those kind of life transitions are massive. Mm -hmm. And to Mm -hmm. make that decision in New York city with rent so high, the cost of living so high, that must be soul crushing if you're not taking on both things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, at Google, I was there full time, but something else was that I didn't graduate college yet because they hired me. I think I was just about to turn 22. So I was the youngest employee in my department. And I was like, well, I can't really go to school full time and also work at Google. So I stopped a school and then worked there until I was 24. My last six months at Google, I started actually taking night classes because I was like, I guess just got to finish this degree. Um, And then after Google, I went back to school, finished full time. So I didn't graduate until I was 25. Um, But Google paid, like I got paid enough to do that full time, but you're right. Like doing that transition into food, especially with social media marketing, like we only had like two or three clients at the time. It was me and my partner and it couldn't support both of us. And so one of us had to just like find another part-time job. So that's when I started working at Marlowe and Sons. And so we like, I did a little bit of marketing, like social stuff for them, but it was really, I got that job one to make money and two to work in their kitchen. It led you down the path to uh, Ferrandi. Yeah, led me down the path to Ferrandi. And like, also something to mention at, you know, when you do make these huge life changes and career changes, obviously you have to like start from the bottom, you know? And like one of the hard things, but like, I'm so happy I kind of fought through it is like, there's like this sense of pride, like, you know, working at Google being so young, there was a pride that I felt and I was proud when I told people and then going after and like having some of my old coworkers see me just like as a server or as a barista and just having to be like, no, like this is just temporary. Like I'm trying to work in the kitchen. And even in the kitchen, I started like shucking oysters, but it's like, you have to kind of feel uncomfortable in the beginning, but like also know where your path is to know that this is just a stepping stone. Yeah. It's all about the reps. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now let's go back a little bit to when you were upstate New York and you then find yourself transitioning into sort of like an all American town. And I'm listening to the way you pronounce your name. And I just want to have a conversation about that because I think I have encountered a few people in the last few years about, you know, when we're working in the public space, you know, we have these ways that we have to pronounce our name, but I found out that these ways of pronounce our names go way back in date to when we were 
children and we had to kind of come up with ways to pronounce our names a little easier. Now, when I read your name, it to me reads Zuin Ha, um, mm -hmm. but you pronounce it differently. So can we talk about the origin story of this? Totally. Yeah. So I pronounce my name Dwen, like D-W-E-N. And I think like, I don't know, I've been pronouncing it that way since I was really young. So I don't have an actual memory of why I started mm -hmm. pronouncing my name this way. Um, but I think with the name, the thing that's really hard with Vietnamese is that like our names are not meant for the English language. And even the last name, like New England, like, you know, that there's so many different pronunciations in English. The way my cousins pronounce it is so different than people I meet from the West Coast or the East Coast. And so I think a lot of it is like very, I don't know, it's like how you want to present yourself to the community. And maybe for me, how I came up with Dwen when I was younger is like, I don't like when people ask me, how do you pronounce your name? I'm like Dwen, it's like Gwen with a D. And I think that made it really easy for non-Vietnamese people to get an understanding of like, oh, okay, like that's easy for me to remember. And I asked because your name resembles my name in Vietnamese. Um, my name, and I never use this, but and I've never said it publicly, but it's Tuyen. It's so it's T U Y E N. Mm -hmm. I I could imagine if I was I was born with the name Kenneth. So, um, but if anybody ever asked me what's your Vietnamese name, I say Tuyen, but it's almost impossible for um, an American person to pronounce it. So I I bury it, but I'm yeah. not so proud about that. It's hmm. a lot of that I have to bury it. But at the same time, I want to ask you nowadays when you are now in the public um, arena and, you know, you're coming in touch with a lot of Vietnamese people. Do you ever think about rectifying the way you pronounce it or will you keep this trajectory forever? Well, I just don't know how I would pronounce it in English, like, yeah, a Vietnamese person, like when you asked me before the interview, like, how should I pronounce your name? Like, you can totally pronounce it Yuyen. You know, a lot of people from the South pronounce it Yuyen. Um, but in English, like, it's always like people are like, oh, is it Duyen? And like, that just doesn't sit well with me either for some reason. Like, I just don't like the way that it sounds. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even in school, like that's something even to this day when people meet me or like they see how it's pronounced for or see how it's spelled first. And they're like, oh, do you? And, and it's like, I always still correct people, though. Like, I think I have some Vietnamese friends who just don't. They're like, whatever, like, however they want to pronounce it, I don't really care. But like now I feel like Dwen has become a part of my identity. Identity. But like when I was younger, I had thought about, oh, maybe I should just change my name and just have it spelled D-W-E-N because that's how like I, you know, I like it pronounced. But I feel like for me to have stayed in touch with my Vietnamese community is that like I've kept it. Yeah. And that's such a, a phenomenon that happens a lot that people have mm -hmm. to change their name. I've seen N-W-E-N. You know, I'm mm. that spelling officially changed or wow. M-C-N-G-U-Y-E-N, McWin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very interesting how, you know, but and I go through life trying to remove the judgment that I have on myself because of my Americanized uh, name and, and the birth. Uh, so I, I deal with this a lot in my own head, that, but I realize like the judgment that we all have for other things comes from the judgment that we oftentimes have on ourselves. So yeah, you know, I'm very, totally. like, I try to like wake up to, you know, <laughs> no. I mean, it's so it's funny. Cause like my husband, he's a French Moroccan and his last name is Samrawi. And it's like, the, and I'm like, I don't want to also change my last name because one, I love Ha, but also Dwen Samrawi, like no one is ever going to be able to pronounce either. And I was like, you know what? Like, I think it's just overly too complicated. <laughs> but have you watched The Bear? I have watched The Bear. I've watched the full first season. I'm, I can't watch it back to back. Like I think maximum I can watch two episodes at a time. And then I need like, I need like a few days break before I can go back into it. I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't do more than two episodes. It's a lot, yeah. but people who have, I've spent 12 years in the kitchen. You've spent a lot of time in the kitchen, um, professional kitchens. And 
the speed and the frenetic energy and the craziness and the egos and all of that is so accurate in the bear, wouldn't you say? It's so accurate. It's like too accurate, you know, to the point where it's like a little PTSD for like some scenes. But I wanted to ask you, how different is the French cooking scene versus the American cooking scene? Hmm. Uh, it is really different. It's definitely more formal. Uh, I feel like in the U.S., you know, a lot of people I was cooking with or even a lot of my chef friends, a lot of people didn't go to culinary school um, and they just kind of learn on the job and they've been cooking at a young age. Over in France, it's like, you know, in high school, they kind of make you decide like what career path do you want to go in? And also it's less frequent where people are changing careers wow. compared to over here. So it's like they like once they start cooking in high school, like rarely will they kind of change to something else, which is so different from kind of our mentality. Mm -hmm. um, and so because they've been in school for so long and cooking and like fine dining is such like a huge pillar over there and like everything kind of stems from that. So it's like even when people have more like casual restaurants, oftentimes they have started from fine dining and then decided to switch over. Um, so because of that, it's like it's really rigorous and the hours are just also super crazy as well. Like, wow. yeah, the hours are even worse. It's insane because in France, they have a lot of labor laws where I think now you're not technically allowed to work over 39 hours per week. But that's the case for pretty much all industries besides the food industry. Like the government really turns a blind eye because it's like, mm -hmm. one, it's really expensive to hire staff. It's like what the like owners are paying to the government in terms of taxes is way more than what you know people are paying over here. So therefore you have less staff for front and back of house. And it's like, but you're still having like to, you know, cook at this like certain level. So over there I was working about like, you know, I'd go into work at eight in the morning and I would leave at like midnight, you know, something like that. Yeah. How do people have a life and why would anyone choose to live that life for their whole career? That's such a good question. Like for me, I knew that I wasn't going to live in France and do that forever. So I was like, all right, like this is my sacrifice for these, you know, two to four, how many years I wanted to do it. But yeah, it really, it got to me. Uh, by the, like, I mean, Monday you go in, I'm feeling good. Tuesday, I'm like, all right, I'm kind of tired. And by Wednesday, I'm like, so done. And it's like... <laughs> And yeah, it's just like this super vicious cycle. Got it. Think about it. And I just think it's almost like, it's almost like slavery, right? Yeah. You're bonded, yeah. You're bonded to these workstations in cramped areas and you don't see the light of day and you're just eight to midnight. That's like horrendous. And you know, when if I hate to make this comparison, but when you think about like a surgeon or these doctors in training, I, uh, I hate to say this, but I need those people to be in those places for all that time to get that. Yeah. So we, the public is, is being taken care of. We need the maximum amount of time. Those human beings can be in that environment so they can pick up and learn and get the experience. Totally. But is there another way to do this with the kitchen work? That's. I mean, I like commend a lot of restaurant owners and chefs who are trying, you know what I mean? Like even just like the snow tipping policy, like last night I went to Kingfisher in San Diego, a Vietnamese restaurant, highly recommend it to anybody, you know, they're really kind of like trying to push the envelope and, you know, they don't have, there's a no tipping policy. And what happens is then like a lot of, you know, the pool, they're still 18% service charge, but now that pool is also going to backup house. And so, I mean, that's more about the discrepancy of what front and back of house are making, but in terms of the hours, like, I, I don't know. I, to be honest, I haven't fully cracked it. And I think probably that's one of the reasons why I got out of the industry because it's like, it's just not sustainable. And I also didn't want to open a restaurant where I knew I had to kind of put people through this. Yeah. I, I don't know how long all of this can be sustainable, you know, mm -hmm. um, but the act of making food at a high level mm -hmm. is disproportionate 
to any money that could be paid on a normal salary uh, in LA or America. It's yeah. proportionate. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, and especially in France, like the hours I told you, I mean, you have chefs making about, I mean, when I was there about 1400 per month to like 1800 per month, you know, like it's insane. But then you have a diner coming in and I think their dinner, just food, not including wine or anything is about 400 per person. So mm. yeah. Mm hmm. It's yeah, it is kind of like modern day slavery, but it's like, unfortunately, that's but the thing is that they also know that there is a demand for the chefs, you know what I mean? I remember I went into the office at one of the restaurants I worked at, and the resume stack was like this thick for chefs. So like, they know if somebody leaves, there's definitely someone else that's going to come right in and take their place. It's amazing. It's almost like the entertainment business as well. Like in the film industry, you know, the the 90, 80% of like the bottom, you know, below the line is getting paid very little. And even when you're first starting out in these executive positions, um, you have to be an intern for a few years and you have to learn the the, the ropes and you have to really pay your dues. And this is mm -hmm. a thing that all the big agencies or production studio companies, they know that at any given time, there's a stack of resumes, you know, yeah. like for um, the mailroom at CAA, you know, it's just like, it, it's impossible even as a Harvard lawyer to, to even get, you know, in sometimes. Totally. Totally. So unfortunately there's just all these industries, obviously, including the food that just kind of reaps the benefits and takes advantage of people. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you start your company Bondo? Bondle. Uh, so I started it during COVID. Um, a little backstory. So the first, uh, so France went through two lockdowns. And the first one happened around March of 2020. And a month before then, I was skiing with my older brother, and I tore my ACL. And I had to get ACL surgery. So I had still had health insurance in New York. And so my parents were like, don't do the surgery in uh, in France, just come home. We'll take care of you. Like, you know, just get it done here. So I flew back, got my surgery while I was recovering, everything shut down. Uh, and so I just had a lot of time to kind of think, mull things over, just kind of wait for the restaurants to reopen was really excited to go back. I went back to France, June, 2020, started working again. The restaurants hadn't fully opened. Like you couldn't have diners come in, but we kind of did like, you know, the three course, like takeaway service that a lot of more fine dining restaurants did. And then I think around August, um, everything reopened, but you know, October, it started to get bad again. So France went through a second lockdown. So from November, 2020, I think until like April, 2021, and at that time, I was like, look, like, you know, one, I'm like so exhausted from being in this industry, but I still want to open a restaurant. But I'm like, I have no idea how this is even viable. I've, I've, no one knew what was happening with the world. And I've always wanted to start like a wine importing company uh, because when I worked at Marlowe and Sons in New York, it was all French wines and the wine list changed every week. So during like staff family meal, like even though I was cooking, I still got to learn a bunch about like, you know, French wines and natural wines in particular. And so I was like, you know, that sounds like such a cool concept, like to have a restaurant, like maybe I could bring cool French wines in and like, you know, stuff like that. And so I was like, maybe this is my chance to start this wine importing company that I've always wanted to do. So it was me, uh, the sommelier at the restaurant I was working at in Paris. Her family's had a vineyard in Provence for seven generations. And so she just had all the right connections and kind of knew like our palate, what I was looking for, and then my partner. And so we just kind of came together and we started, I think we like, uh, formed the LLC in November, 2020. And, you know, took us about a year and a half to get our licenses, get the right, like, uh, winery partners and stuff, and then launch December, 2021. So when you decide that you want to launch this wine import company, what are you looking for in terms of the taste, the body? Like, I, I, I can imagine it going into infinity with the criteria. So I, like on, on your whiteboard, um, your proverbial whiteboard, what do you put down and what are your partners and what do you guys, what kind of discussion do you have saying, uh, 
these are the criteria we want for the wine? That's such a good question because there are so many little things yeah. have to intersect perfectly. Uh, well, first, we started off as a Magnum only wine company. So Magnum refers to the format. So a standard wine bottle, 750 milliliters, a Magnum's double that. So they're bigger. And the reason why we wanted to start a Magnum only company is one, like being in hospitality, it's like psalms, chefs, like we just love, like we love family style meals. And Magnum's is the equivalent of that for wine. It's so communal. It's so celebratory. Um, and so I wanted every time people were drinking my wines to kind of have that like moment. And also because of COVID, we'd spent so much time being alone that I was like, you know what, like I want people to start gathering again. Um, and so part of that, when I'm picking my wines of which wines I want to import, I need to think about like, okay, like, can I drink like a magnum of this? You know, there were so many wines we were tasting. They're like, this is delicious, but like, I could probably just have one glass, two max. So there's that. But also being a chef, I'm thinking about wines that are going to pair really well with food. So I'm thinking about like cuisine a lot where it's not overpowering, but it's not too light. Um, you know, we are actively looking for female winemakers as well. I'm trying to have a lot of inclusion and diversity. Um, so that's part of it. And then also in terms of natural wine, like I'm looking for winemakers that are, you know, really taking care of the land, like, you know, not adding a lot of sulfites, preservatives, herbicides. And so those are like the four main criteria that I'm looking for. That last criteria is uh, a sketchy criteria um, because I've heard that most of the wine that we drink has all these preservatives, these sulfites, these poisons that we're drinking and it's not killing us right away, but it is definitely not good for us. Is that true? Uh, the average conventional wine, yes. You know, I think it's very similar to what you're thinking about with like food as well, you know, like natural wine is more of kind of this umbrella because there's natural, there's organic, biodynamic, um, but I would say like, if you're getting wine from like a massive vineyard, like you have to think about it, like grapes, it's still, it's a living thing. It's a plant, yeah. you know? So it's like, it to ensure that there's consistency year after year to ensure that like the grapes, like, you know, there's aren't all these bugs, like there has to be a lot of, you know, sprays, chemicals and stuff. And even to tweak the wine to make it literally, I mean, it's a plant, like, you know, it's like eating anything year after year, it's going to obviously be different if you're just letting the natural expression come out on its own. Um, so that's what we're going after for, you know, the wines that we have, but it's also a gamble. And it's a huge gamble for the winemakers as well, where it's just like, it's not going to taste the same. Obviously they're going, cause it's like one of its like native yeast fermentation, like, you know, there's no commercial yeast being added. So then you're just letting nature do its thing but how does native yeast actually stay alive and viable? It's like, you got to make sure that the plant is living. You got to make sure that your there, the ecosystem around the vines is like healthy. Um, so there's a lot that goes into that part. Yeah. There, there's a lot of chemistry. And then to add all of this up, it needs to taste a certain way. And how did you come and arrive at the way this should taste? I'm sure your sommelier uh, partner, uh, has a lot to do with that, but what's the process of getting this taste right? Yeah, I think like that's so good because it's like in the natural wine space, you have, I mean, when you're talking about organic, like it can go through the whole spectrum, you know, but I think in America in particular, people are expecting or think that natural wine is going to have this like really funky, sometimes barnyard taste. And yeah, that's one side of, you know, the industry, but there's also a whole other side. And it's funny because in France, natural wine, that that term doesn't fully exist. Like I would talk to like the front of house team at the restaurant and they'd be like, oh, all these Americans are coming in and asking for natural wine. But it's like, they've actually like some regions in France have been making natural wine since forever, you know, organic wine. And so like to them, that's just how everything has always been. And so it's a big marketing word that's been like coined up, I think since the eighties, but you know, I still use it because it's still also 
people can identify a little bit more of like the type of wines that I'm, you know, importing in. But in terms of taste, they're really clean on the palate. And I'd like to say my wines are very elegant, you know, where it's like, I, yeah, I would say that's probably the best way to describe them. They're just elegant wines um, that like are super balanced um, and, you know, doesn't overpower the food, but actually, but it does carry on its own. And how did you come up with the name Bondle? So Bondle, the first, I mean, one, because they were magnet, it's all, it started as a Magnum only wine. We now have standard 750 milliliters that we launched two days ago. Um, but because of that, like we, I wanted like to think of a word that like also encompassed like, I don't know, togetherness, this feeling of like friendship and bonding. So I was like, oh, I really like the word bond. Like, how do I kind of round this out a little bit? And I wanted to create my own word because, you know, if we ever got big enough, like Airbnb or Uber or something like that, I was like, it'd be easier to remember. Um, so I just thought bond. I like that. Let me round it out a little bit to bondle. Yeah, I, I, it's a very catchy name. Uh, I read it as Bonlay. In, in the- yeah. Sure, I love it that Americans like Frenchify it. I I don't know. Maybe one day we'll start saying Bonlay, but as of now, it's Bondel. Very cool. Um, success in the food and wine space um, requires a lot of gritty determination, and that can't be all. You know, this gritty determination. Maybe it's a distinct palate. Maybe it's like this ability to network beyond from where you come from. Maybe it's like style as it relates to the way you present things. There's so many things that you need uh, when you're in the food space or any creative space, but where you have taken Bondo in the last you know, two years since its existence, what do you think are the most important things that a brand or a company like yours in the food space, wine space needs? I would probably say community. Community is super important in this, not as just an entrepreneur and finding other people, other entrepreneurs, other founders, um, but being, it's such a people focused industry, you know? And for me, I think the success that Bondle and even my cooking career has gotten, it a lot of it was people had opened doors for me. And, you know, I moved here from Paris when I like, a week before I launched the company. So December, 2021, and I'm being from New York. I just really didn't know anybody out here in LA. I had like one friend that worked in fashion that moved out like several years ago. Um, but it was like me reaching out. So there's like, you got to have this sort of determination and also like the tenacity to just kind of put yourself out there. And I just reached out to like people that I admired, other founder friends, other chef friends. And like, I just started gifting people bottles and instead of delivering them, I just went up and like hand delivered it myself to kind of start the conversation. And like, I cannot even like tell you how many people just from that had like invited me to a party and like took me around the room and introduced me to others. Then it kind of grew and it grew and grew. So I would say to like really find success is like to find the sort of people that can help you get there. Well, it's a good answer because, you know, uh, community is, is, is almost like a very small kind of enclave kind of thing. And when I think about like, you know, wine, a wine company, it's like, you you got to scale it, but you can't scale anything uh, such as food and beverage without this sense of community or like without having this tactile kind of like connection with your community in order to kind of figure out where the projection of the future of the company goes without this like tactile kind of like interaction with the community that you want to serve. Yeah. And there's community in different ways. There's community with like, you know, our consumers, you know, there's like the online community, there's the in-person, there's my founder community. So it's about like finding kind of those people. And then that's the thing, like all of the people that you're really tight with are going to be quote unquote, like your brand ambassadors. And so it's like, without that, and without the people who've really helped to get you there. And it's also for me as a company to always go back and like reserve them to help them, you know, and it goes both ways. Now, you also have this community event, which is Zwin's Friends. Um, How did this come about? And how does it serve Bondo? It sounds very uh, synergistic. 
It is. And it didn't really start out that way. It was, it just kind of happened. Uh, but Dwen's friends. So when I was living in New York, there was a restaurant, a famous Filipino restaurant, Jeepney Amaharulka. So um, Nicole at the time when, and this is like my first started cooking in New York, uh, she was doing these like guest chef series. So she would bring in a chef and they would kind of spin their cuisine with Filipino cuisine. And it ended up not, she didn't do it as long as we were hoping for me to kind of come onto that platform, but it was, um, you know, it was an idea for me to come on. And so I was just getting kind of nervous of like actually cooking for all these people, like a real menu that I made. So I started Dwen's Friends as a way to just bring my friends over and let me just kind of experiment and have them try some dishes I was kind of coming up with. And then I would have people just like write like little forms, like how I can improve, what they like, what they didn't like. And I think because they were sharing it on social media, other people had kind of picked up and like, hey, like, could you cook us a dinner? And then I started traveling a lot. And as I was traveling, people are like, oh, if you're traveling to the city, can you do a Dwen's Friends here? So it kind of turned into this like global thing. And it would kind of, and so for many years, uh, obviously I wasn't doing it when I was working my crazy chef hours in Paris, but if I ever found like a little month break or so, I would find a way to kind of resume it. So I would come in with the food um, figure out wine pairings and then there would be like another host friend that lived in that city and they would help me find space and then get the guest list going wow. i'm oh, sorry done... we there was a little lot yeah <laughs> have you have you done it in la have so when i first yeah, I have done it in LA. So I've done a decent amount in LA. So when I first moved here, uh, my one friend that I had mentioned that had moved out here a couple of years before me, her sister is an influencer and all of her sister friends are influencers. And she was like, hey, like, I really want to introduce you to my sister's friends. How about you do a Dwen's friends? And like, we can also introduce Bondle. Um, and then that would be a really good way for you guys to get to know each other. And so it turned into a five course meal because I have five different wines. So each course is there's a wine pairing and I'd go up and I talk about the whole experience. I talk about the food, the wine, how they pair well together. Uh, the cuisine is Vietnamese with some French influence. Um, for every dinner, I also create an entirely new menu. It's just something that I... And I have so many different menu ideas and recipes I want to do. So I just always kind of try and do something different. Um, and so from that one dinner that I did, they were all posting it and then it kind of quote unquote exploded. Um, a ton of people started sending me messages of like, Hey, can you do this dinner for me? Um, I'm having this get together, my birthday's coming up. So last year we did about, I think we did about like, like over 10 dinners wow. uh, while within the first year of building. Bumble. Yeah, it was, but you know, something else is that like being a new company and like being a founder, like I try my hardest to not take any money from the company, you know, like we didn't have a salary, like none of the co-founders. And so Dwen's friends was my way of kind of sustaining myself uh, while also being able to push the brand and so it just came at like the perfect time and opportunity to kind of merge the two together and you know when I was looking up back at like all the people who had um had a Dwen's friends and had requested the dinner it was actually the Asian community like every single host was Asian and like you know for me growing up in like a very diverse like I ended up having a very diverse group of friends um it was really beautiful to kind of come to LA and seeing how the Asian and the Vietnamese community has like really shown up for me um so that's another part of community element that I talk about where it's like you know they've shown up for me and like I always am trying to return the favor what a beautiful story and i know that the vietnamese community in southern california is very, very strong i mean obviously orange county is very very strong um we are continually building the entertainment community the chef's community all of the creative community here in la to you know to represent because i think um LA is the cradle of a lot of creative communities and the Vietnamese community happens to be 
um, a rising star. And I, I really want to push that narrative because I live it. I've, I've seen it and I'm, I'm being in the middle of watching all of these amazing, talented people like yourselves starting here. And um, as we continue to, to get together and bond uh, over food and, 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 and making content and films and music, it only gets stronger. So, you know, welcome to LA, you know, I know you've been here for a bit, but welcome. And I, you know, looking forward to uh, this community of, of food uh, network that uh, you'll begin to network here with uh, a few chefs here. Yeah, honestly, I don't think that Bondle would have gotten to where it's at if it if I had moved to any other city. Yeah. Um, I think that like one thing I love about LA is like, you know, I feel like people here understand that like, like there's enough in the pie to be shared, you know, it's like, it's not, I don't feel like everyone is like competing against me, but I've had so many founders and sometimes even in similar industries as me, but still even open doors, you know, and it's like, there's such like this camaraderie that everyone has that it's just like, Hey, like if I win, I want you to win as well. That like, I, I feel so blessed to kind of have that around me. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a, an abundance mentality uh, with mm -hmm. most people uh, that you come in touch with um, in the creative space in LA, especially in the Vietnamese community. I feel like uh, we are very supportive because we know that whatever flavor we bring to the table versus the, our, our, the people next to us, it's going to be very different no matter what. It's just going to mm -hmm. be a different flavor profile. You know, we direct films differently. We write films differently. We, we make wines differently. We make um, cognac differently. So all of it is welcomed. And it's like, in order to build, a, I think, more representation and having a bigger market share of sort of visibility, it's important that we all bond together and, and get these things done. Totally. Could not agree any, even more than that. <laughs> What, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you after all these years uh, of, of your experience as a chef and living and traveling overseas extensively? Well, you know, I think that the Vietnamese like community like what it means to me. So it's like my mom is mixed. So my mom is uh, half white, uh, half American, but both of my parents are adopted. So we don't really know what the background is. But my mom grew up in Vietnam, like we immigrated to the US 91. And Viet Vietnamese is my first language, you know, obviously, like I have a very Vietnamese name, and I speak the language. Uh, but because I looked mixed, I think a lot growing up there, were, I had moments where the Vietnamese community didn't really identify with me. And I think that like, you know, that's kind of what got me to like have a much more diverse group of friends and try a lot of different things. Cause I was like, yeah, Vietnamese, but it's like, I also don't really fit, you know, um, totally in this like bubble. And I think as I've gotten older, like, you know, even now, every time I call my parents, I only speak to them in Vietnamese. So like, I don't forget it. Um, I cook Vietnamese food much more now. Like I really try and bring out these flavors in my cuisine while maybe before I was more kind of, you know, leaning towards French or more farm to table. Um, and so what does it mean to me? I think a lot of it is like being like, I'm very proud of being Vietnamese. I'm like so proud of our cuisine. I think that like, you know, just the textures, the flavors, the profile, like, like I will always talk about Vietnamese food, always try and take people to a Vietnamese restaurant. And I think like how we've been able to like come together, even in times of like hardships of our history and our past and how Vietnamese people, how we've like taken those hardships. And like a lot of us have become entrepreneurs, how we like stick together. I think like, yeah, I would say proud is the word that I have. Your mother is Amerasian, right? So mm -hmm. you said she had, had American, uh, half Amer half American, white American, half Vietnamese, and your father's full Vietnamese. Yeah. And and so they came over in 1991. So you were born in Vietnam. So I was born in the refugee camps in the Philippines. 
Yeah. So my mom and like, obviously nobody had papers back then. And so during the Refugee Act, essentially, you just had to like go up to like the office and you like just had to look white or look half black. And they would like be like, okay, well, I guess that's enough. And you can go to America, which is crazy. And so my mom was telling me that even like she would see people tan as dark as they could outside to try and convince them that they were half black. Um, and so we were sponsored by the missionaries uh, because we just didn't have the money to go. And like my family's Buddhist as well. They made us convert. And like even like we had to go to church for the first couple of years in the States. And my parents even say like, hey, like we're going to church, but we're still Buddhist. We're just, you know, uh, like... Oh. This is our identity. Um, but my but mom was pregnant with me at the time. And like, she was like trying to hide it because she was scared that she couldn't come to America. And like, I know she just had the right woman, like the right officer who like gave her the paperwork to go. And then we go to the Philippines and it's like, you know, I've seen some photos. My parents tried to describe it to me, but I can only imagine like how insane it was. But it's like you had this like small four by six kind of hut that like a five family would like live in. And my yeah, I was born there. And you know, so uh we were there. Yeah, we were there for about, I think, six months before we moved to upstate New York. And it's like, you know, even talking to my dad and asking him him his experience like one of the things that he always eats do you know those little peanuts that are coated with like coconut or stuff yeah. so like that's how my parents made money in the refugee camp like my dad learned how to make that and like he would sell it to like or he would barter that with other things so it's like even when we eat that as a family now it's kind of this representation of like where we came from god that's such a cool story <laughs> yeah in 91, so I was like in the 90s, right? Early 90s. Yeah, I think uh, I have a good friend, Jin Hoi. He's a community rights advocate, and he worked in the Philippines for the Vietnamese camps as a lawyer mm -hmm. from Australia. And he did a lot of work, maybe 10 years in, in the Philippines. Uh, he's very proud of that time in the Philippines, helping um, the Vietnamese. And he tells me uh, the stories of how difficult life in the refugee camps were at the time so i can mm -hmm. only imagine you know the the difficult times your parents had at that time yeah i mean like when my mom had my sister when she was 19 obviously this was a different time my parents were rice farmers so when they came to the states you know my dad my mom was like 24 my dad was 27 28 with three kids they don't know the language you know and it's like it's totally foreign and it's like I still just cannot believe how they were able to make it and you know the everyone started working in the manufacturing plants um and they were paying people like 50,000 a year which is really good for early 90s and you've just come from yeah. Vietnam but like my parents knew kind of long term that like that was enough and so they my dad learned to trade so my dad learned like how to fix cars my mom like learned how to do hair and like they would take English classes and because they were able to do that like I think IBM ended up leaving like several years later so now you have all Vietnamese people who just know how to do this one thing, not fully know the language, and now they're out of a job. And because they were able to kind of think long term, that really gave them the advantage to kind of move forward. Nothing like a little pre-planning to see the future, right? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And you worked a little bit on the Obama campaign, didn't you? I did work on the Obama campaign. And what did you do? So for when I, well, I worked kind of uh, for both campaigns. The first one, his 08 campaign, I was still in high school and I went to this um, like college prep program. I mean, very Asian. My parents put me in every year uh, in high school and it was at Binghamton University. And I think Hillary Clinton at the time was campaigning as well. And she like, I was walking back from class uh, to my dorm and like this car just kind of rolls up and then stops right next to me, like this huge black SUV and like the window rolls down and it's like Hillary Clinton. Oh, and shit. she's like, <laughs> she's like, hi, 
hi I'm Hillary Clinton how are you and she's just like talking to me and I'm like but like no one else was with me at the time it was just me so I'm like telling people this crazy story <laughs> and like I was like I don't think anyone believed me but I think there was like um like a debate happening that night so then I was like you know what like, I kind of just want to watch and see what's going on um and then that kind of sparked kind of my interest in politics and it was more of like you know for me, I always looked at politics as like a way to help people on a much broader scale. And like, I really kind of wanted to do that as well. Um, and then just something about Obama, just like really, I like identified so much on the issues and the policies that he was like fighting and, you know, um, standing for. And then I just started campaigning for him, like even in high school and I was voted class Democrat to a very Republican school. So like I really stuck out. Um, and then in 2012, I got involved much more. So I was a community organizer for him. Um, I organized for Brooklyn, uh, predominantly in Williamsburg and Greenpoint. And, you know, every weekend we'd go down to Pennsylvania. Um, you know, we would canvas down there, phone banking, calling Nevada, other states. Um, and so I was super involved and Honestly, it, if it wasn't for the Obama campaign, I don't think I would have had this sort of trajectory because it's like they've taught, they teach so much leadership in there. You know, one of the things I, I still stick and I still hold dear is they'd always say, like, if you're doing it by yourself, you're doing it wrong. And so it's all about, like, how do you find people to help you to get where you need to be? And it's like, even from a small level to if you're a volunteer to, you know, all the way up, like, they find ways to, like, make you feel really proud and have these sort of leadership, like, sort of positions. And it was such a great experience. You know, I've heard this from um, another good friend of mine, Bowen. He's a director. And he worked on the Obama campaign as well. He said the same thing. There's tenets within that campaign that mm -hmm. trickled down from the top, these ways of thinking. And the success of that campaign for, for the Obama campaign really is a reflection of the mechanical side, the technical side of raising awareness within the communities that they were trying to get votes for. And it worked beautifully as, mm -hmm. as we know in history. So I understand what you mean by that sort of like that formative time working for the campaign really shaped who you are and allowed you to kind of springboard and leap from where you were in those years to today. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, it's like trying to imagine calling, you know, your phone banking and they're like, hey, we have like a list of Republicans in Texas. We just want to make sure they're voting Republican. Maybe you'll have some Democrats go ahead and call them and say you're from the Obama campaign. And like to do that over and over wow. and over again and like constantly being put in like uncomfortable positions like you, you can't do anything else but grow from that. I look forward to your growth in the next few years. Um, with Bondle and hopefully with Zwin's friends and the trajectory of what you're trying to create. I love creatives and I look forward to seeing all the things that you do. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Kenneth, and letting me share a little piece of my story with your audience. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.